turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The following program is sponsored. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy describes Jesus, the Son of God. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Don't be getting the idea that he's aloof, he's distant, and he doesn't understand. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, because he understands. you're a bodybuilder, a politician, or a business mogul, we're all tempted to take pride in our own abilities. But as Christians, our power comes from a supernatural source. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy explains how to tap into God's strengthening grace. We're getting some life-changing instruction for renewing our hope and confidence, even when we're feeling weak and discouraged. Philip is continuing a series titled Total Grace as he encourages us to anchor our faith in the knowledge that Jesus promised he will provide what we need in our time of need. I think we'll all come to a place in life, or we all will come to a place in life at one time or another where we've had enough. We're exasperated and exhausted. We're ready to surrender. Whether it's in raising a family, the pursuit of a career, the building of a lasting marriage, the keeping of friends, the fighting of an illness, the conquering of a disability, refusing temptation, church life, our walk with God. We can become exasperated and exhausted to the point of surrender. It's interesting, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 24 and verse 10, the Bible says this, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. But we have to acknowledge at times our strength is small. We get run down. Life drains us to the bottom of our resolve. But here's the good news. We can be made strong. Our small strength can be swallowed up in his great strength. And that's the good news. We can be strong through faith in our God. Because in Joshua 1 verse 9, what does God say to Joshua? Be strong and courageous, for I will be with you, and I won't fail you, and I won't leave you. I like this one, 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, where Paul says to young Timothy, who was given to timidity and anxiety. He says, Timothy, be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to pivot off that last verse because the Bible does promise strengthening grace. Timothy, be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's grace that brings us to faith, and there's grace that supplies the strength to continue in the faith. So let's look at our text, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 
to 16. Three things, the exhortation, the encouragement, and the expectation. So let's jump right in. The exhortation. What is the exhortation? It's let us hold fast our confession, verse 14. That's the exhortation. The word exhortation means to urge, to appeal, to come alongside someone and to cheerlead them in a certain direction. In some ways, this whole letter is some spiritual smelling salts to revive them in their resolve to follow Jesus. Because after all, Jesus is superior to Moses, superior to the angels, superior to Aaron. Let me look at this little phrase for a moment with you. Let us hold fast our confession, verse 14. That's what they're exhorted to do. Now, the word hold fast is an interesting Greek word. It's used in the Gospels to speak of people that clung to Jesus, like the woman who clung to him after his resurrection. That's our word. She grabbed him by the ankles almost. That's her word. She clung to him. And that's how it's used throughout the book of Hebrews. There to remain committed to Christ. They're to hold fast. They're to cling to the Savior cling the whole fast to our confession of faith in the Lord Jesus. This isn't just remaining committed to Jesus. This involves holding on to your public confession. Notice, hold fast to your confession of faith. There's nothing private about our faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't gone public about your love for Jesus, you're not in a good place because if you don't confess him before man, he won't confess you before the Father. As one writer, Raymond Brown, says, this is not merely an appeal to endurance, but an exhortation to fearless witness. Don't be robbed of your faith. Advertise it. Hold it fast and hold it forth. That's the idea. Hold it fast and hold it forth. Now, for them, that was becoming a challenge. We read in Hebrews 10 that they were disinherited. I'm going to guess businessmen lost business. I'm going to guess they lost friends, family. That's on the Jewish side of things. And then they, like every other Christian, they were up against the Roman authorities and their dislike for Christians. And no doubt it would have been easy to just live in the shadows, to be quiet, to, you know, confess a private faith, but they must go public with it. They must not be robbed of it. They must advertise it. They must hold it fast, and they must hold it forth. Same with us. Same with us. Let's look at the second thought. You're not only going to get the exhortation, you've got the encouragement. You see, they're being exhorted to hold fast. Now, there's a price tag that comes with that. There's no doubt about it. The writer of this letter recognizes that, you know what, I'm asking you to stand in the firing line. But I'm going to give you reasons to do it. I'm going to encourage you as I exhort you. And he gives them two reasons, Jesus' supremacy and Jesus' sympathy. What's his point? As you read verse 14 and 15, seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's one reason, Jesus' supremacy. And the second reason, Jesus' sympathy. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Here's what he's saying. I know you're tempted to go back, but that would be utter folly. 
why would you go back to the old covenant when Jesus has ratified a new covenant in his blood? Why would you go back to the temple when in Jesus Christ God is tabernacling, dwelling among us? Why would you go back to the blood of bulls and goats that can only temporarily cover your sin when, behold, the Lamb of God has appeared to put away sin? Why would you go back to a Levitical priesthood that's managed and maintained by flawed individuals like Aaron? Jesus is greater than Aaron. Jesus is greater than Moses, the lawgiver. Jesus is greater than Joshua, the warrior that settled the people of God in the land that God had promised. Jesus is better than all of that. His covenant is more perfect and his sacrifice more full. Why would you go back? In fact, you get a hint of that, don't you? Seeing then we have a great high priest. It would be folly to settle for that which is inferior. So let's look at these two thoughts quickly. Jesus' superiority and Jesus' sympathy. This is the encouragement to hold fast and hold forth. On the one hand, because Jesus is worth it. I mean, if you're going to fight for a cause, fight for Jesus' cause. I just finished a book by a friend of mine who was, before he got saved, was a Protestant terrorist in the Troubles in Northern Ireland. He was part of a terrorist group called the Ulster Volunteer Force, UVF. And he joined it as a young man in the fight against the IRA. And he was driven by this thought This is a cause worth dying for. And he gets caught, put in prison. He meets Christ in prison. Today, he's an evangelist in England. He wrote a book about his life. I just read it. You know what the book's called? A Cause Worth Living For. Politics and loyalism in Northern Ireland, that to me was a cause worth dying for. But Jesus Christ, that's a cause worth living for. He's worth it. When you understand who he is, what he's done, and what he can mean to you, he is superior. He is Lord. He is King of kings. That's the argument that's going on here. When you understand who he is, his supremacy, then why wouldn't you hold forth your confession? This is a cause worth living for and dying for. Notice the phrase, seeing, recognize, consider that we have a great high priest, superior. And here's part of his superiority. Who has passed through the heavens? That's language not familiar to us, priests and passing through the heavens. But in their minds, I think they would have got what he was drawing up because the Levitical priest, the high priest, once a year made atonement for the people. The day of atonement, Leviticus 16, isn't it? he would go into the Holy of Holies. But as he took the blood of the innocent lamb that would cover the sins of the people, he went through the outer court. Having gone through the outer court, he went through the holy place. Having gone through the holy place, he went through into the Holy of Holies where he spread the blood on top of the mercy seat which covered the broken law of God, which was a sign that God would turn away his wrath from the people who have broken his law. And so the priest made atonement on that day, and he passed through the outer court, holy of place, holy of holies. But do you understand that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and sat down at the right hand of God? You read about that in Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3, that having 
purged our sins by himself. He sat down at the right hand of God. This is speaking of Jesus' enthronement. This is speaking of the fact that Jesus right now is in the presence of God at the right hand of the majesty on high, and his presence indicates that the work has been complete. And he passed through the heavens. He passed through the atmospheric heavens. Then he passed through the stellar heavens. And then he entered into the third heaven, which is the presence of God. He passed through the heavens. This is more significant. This is better, greater. The old preacher said what? There's the heavens you see by day, the heavens you see by night, and the heavens you see by faith. Well, by faith, we recognize Jesus is in that third heaven. And that's the whole argument here, isn't it? He's eminently qualified to be our high priest. He's superior. If I may put it like this, I hope it's a, a good enough analogy. He's saying, why would you go back? Look at the spiritual upgrade we got when Jesus came. We go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We go from the blood of bulls and goats to the blood of God's own Son. We go from priest to the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Spiritual upgrade. I like upgrades, do you not? I mean, I like going to an airport. You know, I buy the kind of low-end cars for wherever I'm going, hoping that they've kind of run done of them, and I get a free upgrade to an SUV or a sports car. You know, you go to a hotel. It's a beautiful thing when they say to you something like, hey, you know what, we're going to upgrade you. We're kind of out of rooms, but we've got a nicer room, and you uh, you know, I'm up for it. You enjoy it. I enjoy it. Maybe get an upgrade on an airline seat or something like that. That's the whole argument of Hebrews. Better, perfect, forever. Upgrade from the old covenant. Why would you go back given the superiority of Jesus Christ? So you've not only got that as a motivation, you've got, secondly, Jesus' sympathy. Jesus' sympathy. That's verse 15. See then that you have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Actually, let me go back to that a moment and just pick that apart because I kind of missed that. Jesus, the Son of God. That's the great high priest. That speaks of his humanity and his deity. Jesus, that's the man, the Son of God. Jesus, who is one person, two natures, fully God, completely man. Now, if he's going to be a priest, a mediator, an advocate, a representative, if he's going to bridge the gulf between man and God that sin has created, he needs to be Jesus, the Son of God. Because half the bridge is humanity and half the bridge is deity. And if he's going to represent man to God and God to man, he needs to be both. And he is. And that's the beauty of this. He's Jesus, the Son of God. As J.C. Ryle says, the Son of God, mighty to save, the Son of Man, mighty to feel. And that's his superiority, and, and it leads to this idea of his sympathy, because the writer would want to quickly dispel the idea, well, he's exalted. He's passed into the heavens. He's beyond reach. That's a whole different world. That takes him out of my world. He can't identify with where I'm at. And the writer anticipates that because he's exalted Christ, right? He's the great high priest, passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. But he qualifies, look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of that same person, where he is, who he is. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. 
As we think about his exaltation and his vindication, don't be getting the idea that he's aloof, he's distant, and he doesn't understand. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. The one who sits on the throne is a sympathetic, faithful, and merciful high priest. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16, and Hebrews 2, 17 to 18. He's not detached from the human experience because he shared our humanity, Jesus, the Son of God. And in sharing our humanity, he faced our temptations, which then, according to Hebrews 17 and 18, qualifies him to come to our aid because he understands. I want to drill down on that for a moment, but before I do that, I want to address a question that's often raised, but hold on a minute. I get kind of cold comfort from this because when you read the words and kind of read into the words, hold on a minute, he's the son of God. What does he know about my struggles? And if he's without sin, there's a perfection to him that's not me. Therefore, he can't identify with me and I can't identify with him. I want to address both those issues. I think they're wrong by a long shot. Number one, although he was God, he was man. One person, two natures. And I believe when he faced those temptations, he faced them as a man. And he faced them with the help of the Father. I do nothing without the Father. He lent on the Father. He used the same means that is available to us to indeed face the temptations and face them down. I believe if you read the Gospels, honestly, you'll see that he overcame temptation the same way we can. And then secondly, the fact that he never sinned in the face of temptation only points to the fact that he experienced sin to a degree and an intensity that you and I know nothing about. He fought with sin to a point well beyond our experience. We have yielded to sin, sadly. And our thresholds vary. But at some point, at some time, we cross a threshold and we surrender. Jesus never crossed that threshold. Which means he experienced the attack of the enemy the reality of temptation and its intensity in a way that you and I will never be able to understand. But it makes him a great high priest for us. One commentator kind of drew this analogy. Imagine you're in the ring with the heavyweight world champion you know, of boxing. You know, I, I don't know who it is now, but let's go back to the days of Mike Tyson or somebody like him. And you and I standing face to face with Mike Tyson. You know, I'll speak for myself. All he has to do is blow in my direction and I'm down. All right? KO'd. But let's imagine someone's in there and they go around with him. And then they go down. Or someone goes two rounds, three rounds, four rounds. Then they go down. What about the guy that goes 15 rounds toe-to-toe with Mike Tyson? Now, i got a question. Which one experienced the intensity and ferocity of that man's ability to fight? Was it the guy who went down in the first round, the second round, or the guy who stood standing the whole 15 rounds? You know the answer to that. That's the analogy. So what, you're put off by the fact that Jesus didn't sin? You mean that he went 15 rounds and didn't fall? That means he experienced 
the attack with an intensity that you and I who go down in the first or second round never experience. So he's a great high priest. And he's been tempted and yet without sin. Tempted in all points. I think that's just tempted with all kinds of temptation. That's mean he was tempted with every kind of temptation. He wasn't a woman, so there'd be certain temptations a woman would face. Jesus never faced. He never experienced the temptations of a 40 or 50 or 60-year-old man because he died in his 30s. So the point of the text is simply, he was tested with all kinds of temptations, like we are. And he came out of it without sin. And that means that when you go to the high priest that's passed into heaven, you go to someone who can identify and understand. I mean, just physically, emotionally, spiritually. Jesus knew what it was to be hungry, to thirst, didn't have much by way of material things. The foxes had their holes. The birds of the air had their nests. The son of man, nowhere to lay his head. Didn't have much retirement. Son of a carpenter. Lived on the poorer side of the tracks, so to speak. Limited education. Didn't travel very far. Went out of the country once. Jesus experienced all kinds of emotional issues. Sadness. He faced the hatred of others, the misunderstanding of his family, disappointment with friends. The disciples drove him crazy. Oh, you, you know, slow to believe and of unbelief. I mean, it goes on physical pain, the cross, psychological pain and terror, the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, what range of emotions, what path in life? What problem that you face that you can't find something in his life that approximates to that? And it allows you to know that when you go and talk to him, you're talking to someone who's got a sympathetic ear, who understands where you're coming from. I'm not much of a musician, but I'm told that in some cases, if you were to go into a room with two pianos and you were to strike a middle C on one piano, you'll hear that same note reverberate on the second piano, though you never touched it. It's what they call sympathetic resonance. And you know what? Jesus can express that to you. What registers in your life finds a resonance in his. That's why the hymn writer said, what a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. You're listening to Philip DeCourcy on Know the Truth. Today's message is part of our current Total Grace series. Order the complete study on CD or listen to previous messages online at ktt.org. At Know the Truth, we hope you'll remember that it's your generosity that allows us to plan, produce, and distribute each daily broadcast. It's your forward thinking that makes it possible for men and women to hear the truth of God's Word shared clearly and boldly by Philip DeCourcy. And today, you can add your voice, your support, when you become a Truth Ambassador. Truth Ambassadors stand up and sign up to make a monthly recurring donation to keep Know the Truth on the air. Join this dedicated team of friends when you visit us online at ktt.org. Or let one of our friendly volunteers assist you when you call 888-644-8811. 
And when you give, you'll be one of the first to receive the book, Grace-Focused Optimism by C.L. Chase. This book is bursting with encouragement as the author explains the many dimensions of grace. Let the book give you a biblical perspective that will bolster your heart with confidence and hope. And Philip will be referring to this resource throughout our Total Grace series. Ask for Grace-Focused Optimism when you become a monthly Truth Ambassador or when you give a one-time gift to know the truth. Your gifts touch the lives of people in your community and around the world. Donate online at ktt.org or call us at 888-644-8811. And if you prefer to send your donation by mail, write to us at Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. From all of us at Know the Truth, we're glad you joined us today. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd, inviting you back tomorrow for more about God's total grace, the grace that covers us from beginning to end. That's the subject Tuesday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Foundation, we believe every child should have the access and opportunity to participate in quality music programs. I'm Sarah Evans. Music has always been a huge part of my life. Music education isn't just important if you're going to make it your career. It also helps children develop the abilities that set them up for lifelong success. Music is transformative, and I want to ensure that it is never silenced. Learn more at itstartswithme.org. In his play, As You Like It, Shakespeare described death as mere oblivion, without eyes, and without everything. Hi, this is Lon Solomon, and is this what death really is, mere oblivion? Well, the Bible says no. The Bible says after we die, we remain conscious and awake and completely self-aware for all of eternity, but in one of two locations— We're either awake and aware in heaven, or we're